We have these little jokes. She'll tell me jokes sometimes, but I got a good one. Um, okay, so who is the, the wealthiest businesswoman in all the Bible? Lydia, you think Lydia, seller of purple. Okay, but I got one better for you. It was actually Pharaoh's daughter because she went to the bank of the Nile and pulled out a little profit. Come on now. Penny. <laughs> Penny, I thought of you when I saw that one, so I had to share that one with you. Okay. Book of Daniel, chapter 8. Now, we, uh, we actually almost got to the very end of Daniel last time, so um, I really don't have a lot of commentary. I'm, I really want to hurry up and get into uh, chapter 9, but I did want to just, for the sake of being complete, uh, finish reading the last few verses. But we got down to verse 25, and uh, to sum up in 30 seconds or less, let's see if we can do this, um, chapter 8, it's about Antiochus Epiphanes, right? We look very heavily about this little horn that is the, the latter-day extension or the, the, the latter extension of the Grecian Empire through the Seleucid Empire that was broken into four uh, different empires after Alexander the Great. Um, if you remember, we talked about the nature of prophecy, how prophecy is cyclical. It, it, it sets up types and images, right? So it can fulfill so far, and then something can happen later, and it can fulfill even further all the way. And we talked about how Antiochus is a picture. He's a model of a final world empire, a final world leader that will reign and rule uh, at the very end of the age, and how Antiochus Epiphanes is a picture of that ruler. And uh, we talked about how sometimes when you read prophecies that you'll read at the very beginning, it's talking about one time period, and then the language will kind of shift and morph into the latter part of how it's going to be fulfilled in the very end. There's several examples of this all the way throughout the scriptures. We're at the latter part of chapter 8. So we have now come to the part where he's very heavily talking specifically about the last days prior to what you and I would call the second coming of Christ. Back it up to verse 23, and he says this specifically. It says, in the latter period of their rule. It's a term that talks about the latter part. Remember we talked about how in the uh, image of um, the ten horns, there's one little horn that rises up, and we talked about how that's a latter extension of Okay, that's the same idea here. Verse 23, in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will rise insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will and will destroy mighty men and holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart. He will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even pose the prince of princes. Who's that? Who's the prince of princes? That's Jesus, right? Okay, he will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. Okay, let's stop there for just a moment. Um, to me, this is what kind of seals the deal with the prophecy because it says he will oppose even the prince of princes. That tells you the location of where this prophecy is being fulfilled. Um, it's being fulfilled at the latter part of, of the end of the age where the, we, we believe the second coming is going to take place. And, um, and it says in verse 24, he will become very strong, but not by his own power. Remember what we talked about the dragon in the book of Revelation. See, we know where Antiochus Epiphanes' power came from. He inherited that from the Seleucid Empire. That's where he got his power. But it says specifically here 
in this latter image, this latter type of this person, that he receives his power from without human hands. Well, where does he get his power according to the book of Revelation, chapter 13? From Satan himself, right? From the dragon, okay? Verse 24, continue. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. Okay, and I think uh, we got down to about verse 25 or 26. Is that where we wound up last time? I think we're in 26. All right, let's finish out the rest of the chapter. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been given to you is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. Well, from Daniel's standpoint, that makes sense, right? We're talking about the distant future from his perspective. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. And then I got up and I went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. All right. And I think that you and I can probably uh, agree with Daniel a little bit here. All right. We, we kind of get a sense of what the vision's talking about, but not clearly. It's kind of like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Right now we see in a mirror what? Darkly, dimly, right? We, we kind of see, but we don't see completely, not perfectly, right? And that's because it hasn't happened yet, all right? But when it begins to happen, because you have a background in understanding the prophecy, it'll become clear, right, when it happens, if it happens within our lifetime. It'll become clear. Okay, so Daniel chapter 8, uh, what we just covered, if you remembered, uh, happened in the third year of Belshazzar. Can I use the slides now, Alan? Okay. All right. So what we just got through reading was Daniel chapter 8. It was the third year of Belshazzar. Belshazzar. Got to get that right. Um, so Daniel has this vision. He's standing beside the Ulai River. He's over in Persia. He's in Shushan, uh, which is about to be the next capital of the world. And now this morning... We're going to continue, but we're going to continue in chapter 5. Why are we doing this? I want to go back to this because some of you may not uh, have been in here. You may not have begun at the very beginning when we started doing the chronology of the book of Daniel. But we're reading it like this because we're not reading it in the order that it was compiled and placed in the scriptures. We're reading it in chronological order, okay, according to the reign of the kings. Because if you look at every chapter, it mentions the reign of the king, where they were in their reign, and all we're doing is we're reordering the books to read them as they happen in history. Okay? Yeah, please, go ahead, David. Do commentators offer a reason it was not written in chronological order? Um, I'm trying to think what I have read on that. I don't have an answer on that. Okay. Actually. I mean, usually, I like in the Gospels, it's because they're developing themes. And, yes. And Matthew, definitely. Matthew's yeah. that way. Matthew, by the so. way, is not written in chronological order either. It's a collection mm -hmm. of teachings based upon about five themes of the scripture. So you're right. Yeah. Luke is trying to be very chronological in his. Okay. Um, so Daniel 8 takes place during the third year of Belshazzar, and then Daniel chapter 5 look up on the screen, also takes place in the third year of Belshazzar at the very end of the, the, the latter part of his reign. Okay, so before we get into Daniel chapter 5, I want to bring something back to your memory really quick that we read in Daniel chapter 1. This is going to be key for what we're going to read about in Daniel 5. It says, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. This is back when Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem. 
along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put them in the treasure house of his God. Now, what's going on here? What did, what did Nebuchadnezzar do? What's, the, what's he doing by, by, by taking the articles of worship out of the temple of God and placing them in his temple, which, by the way, was Marduk, the temple of Marduk? Any, any ideas? My God is bigger than your God. <laughs> right? It's the idea. Everybody had their own gods, and they were proud of their gods, right? And so this was a way of showing up gods. We, we took the implements of Yahweh out of his temple. We robbed his temple, right? And we placed them inside the temple of Marduk. Okay, so that's the idea. Now, that happened when? How many years earlier did that happen? If I remember where we are chronologically. A little bit more than 60. We're at 70 now. This is 70 years earlier when this happened. So we're literally at the very end of the 70-year Babylonian captivity, right? It's going to be after this regime change takes place when the Persians come in that we're going to have the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther and all the people are going to get to go back home, right? So chronologically speaking, that's, that's where we are. Well, watch what happens when we read the opening verses of Daniel 5, okay? Now, I want somebody to help me read this morning. Who would like to read? Okay, back to Daniel, I'll, do, I'll run it. That way you don't have to... Work those knees. I'll get them in. All right. We're going to read the first few ver verses together. Uh, let's see. Let's, let's read about... Let's start with the first three. Hello. There she is. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink for them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Okay. Good idea or bad idea? You know, bad things happen when you're drunk right? This is not a good plan. Um, they are literally making a sport, making a mockery of the implements that was used in the temple of God. And he's, he's, he's having this party. It says he invited a thousand guests. Now, in a moment, I want you to be asking the question in the back of your mind, why now? Why now? Why in the world is he throwing this big old party and doing this now, after 70 years of these things being in the temple of Marduk. We'll get to that question in just a moment. Kind of a side question. Um, there was a, a time period when I, I had a, a, just a fascination in studying about the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, probably came out of my Indiana Jones days, right? The Raiders of the Lost Ark and so forth. It was kind of my boyhood uh, joy, if you will. But, um, but interestingly enough, when, when Nebuchadnezzar came in to take the implements out of the temple in 586 B.C., there was no Ark of the Covenant in there. 
And so there's a whole mystery behind where the Ark of the Covenant wound up. Um, some people believe that, uh, uh, that the Ark of the Covenant was, was taken away by Jeremiah and was hidden over on a, under a mountain somewhere. There's others that believe that it was taken underneath the Temple Mount. And for those of you who have been to Israel, you know that the Temple Mount underneath it is full of caver, caverns and caves, all kinds of, of, of chambers underneath the Temple Mount. So that's very possible. Um, there are some rabbis that believe that the Ark of the Covenant is located under there somewhere and that they're waiting for the Messiah. And when the Messiah arrives, they'll open the chamber and bring out the Ark of the Covenant, place it in the new temple. So I don't know. I just think it's fascinating that they never found it. It was missing from history from that point forward. Yeah. Taylor and I were at a conference today in Dallas. Yes. And they said that there are... There you go. Sorry, I forgot. They... They didn't claim that the Ark of the Covenant had definitively been found. Right. But they said that there are people who claim mm -hmm. to have seen it, priests who claim to have seen it, and that they claim it has been found. And they they have all the other elements of the temple ready. Yep. That was the only thing. But there are priests who say that they have seen it for themselves, the Ark yeah. of the Covenant. The so Temple Institute. It may have been found. Yeah, the Temple Institute in Israel, um, they have, over the last 20 years or more, have spent millions, if not tens of millions of dollars, recreating all of these implements that's talked about right here. You can go back to Leviticus and, and some of the other prophetic books and see all of the implements that were used. Um, they have everything, like you said. Everything to do a new temple, a third temple, is ready to go. Did anybody see the news about the five red heifers that were delivered to Israel? I can't tell you how many times over the last 15 years I've heard a story about a red heifer somewhere, you know, that was being ready. But here's the problem. The reason why you'll hear these stories pop up about red heifers, you, know, you guys know what the red heifer's for? Am I just speaking Greek here or Hebrew? Okay, I'm seeing heads go like this. In order for you to have a new temple, you have to dedicate it first. It has to be sanctified for God. It has to be dedicated for God. There is a procedure that's given in the Torah about a, a cleansing that has to happen for the temple. Well, that can only happen through the burnt ashes, the burnt offering of a red heifer. It has to be perfect, perfect without blemish. Well, they've tried to breed these things over the last 20 years, and every single time before it reaches the age of two, which it has to be at least the age of two before they can sacrifice it, um, they'll find a blemish. They'll find a white hair somewhere behind its ear or something, and all of a sudden it makes it non-kosher. They can't use it. Well, it turned out... Do you have a story to tell about it? Go ahead. They were talking about that yesterday. Uh, Jimmy okay. Evans was. And uh, he said it left Dallas-Fort Worth in the last several weeks with five pure heifers yep. that the rabbis had come over and they were sending them back to Israel. Yeah, so it turns out there's a breeder here in Texas that specifically breeds for the type of, of redness or red heifer or whatever that is kosher for the temple. Well, it turns out he had five of them. <laughs> and he delivered all five of them to the Sanhedrin. Did you know that there's a new Sanhedrin in Israel? A lot of people don't know this. There was a, a Sanhedrin, a, a constitution of religious uh, leaders was reconstituted, what, probably about eight, nine years ago it was. But anyway, these are being delivered to Israel to prepare for a new temple. So I'm just saying all this stuff is out there. It's being done as we speak. Okay? Tim? Yeah. How can you say now that they're redoing all the things that were in the Ark of the Covenant? Yeah. How can that be when Aaron, the 
oh, as far as I know, they're not trying to recreate the Ark of the Covenant. If I'm not mistaken, that's the only thing that they're not recreating, which makes me curious if they wonder if they might know where it is. <laughs> so I don't know. They were also saying yesterday that in that, that they had put together, it's a, all the parts to make the temple. Yeah. And all they have to do is assemble it. They said they can assemble it in less than a year. Yeah, if, if, I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken, they even prefabricated some of the walls of this thing, like ready to go in a warehouse. It's crazy, 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 crazy. Um, here's the thing, Maxan. You actually don't have to have the Ark of the Covenant in order to have a temple because if you remember, Herod's temple also did not have the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. Do so you realize that? It was not there. Um, they still had the curtain. They still had the whole nine, whatever, but the Ark of the Covenant was not there. There's the, I, there's a, there is a prophecy. Well, I'm not going to get into that this morning. There, there are some people that believe that right prior to the Messiah arriving, it will be delivered to Jerusalem. Okay? But we don't know. Okay. So let's read verse 3 one more time. Uh, up here on the screen, let's see. Verses 3 and 4. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And how many times in the Old Testament do you see God correcting the peoples because of their idolatry? Well, you're going to see that in a major way here in just a moment. Now, to me, this is strange. And when I, when I was preparing this uh, class, you know, one of the questions that I have in the back of my mind is, um, now, why now? You know, these, these implements have been sitting in the Temple of Marduk now for 70 years, almost an entire lifespan. And all of a sudden, nobody's bothered with them at all. Why take them out and purposely do something like this? Why take them out and purposely rub it in the nose of the Jews and do something that would just absolutely be a, an egregious assault to their conscience, right? Do you guys have any thoughts? I'll, I'll share with you what I think here in a moment. But do you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Go ahead. I'll get to that. Right, so you're just like going to kind of thumb their noses, right? Yeah. Okay. David, okay, go ahead. I was going to give it to you. All right, go ahead. I was just going to ask if he was aware, maybe through Daniel, of the 70-year prophecy. That's a really good thought. And so the question is, is Belshazzar aware of the 70-year prophecy? It turns out when you go back and you read um, the Talmud and, and some Midrashic, uh, Midrashic, Midrashic uh, resources, this is what the Jewish historians actually teach is what's going on here. Um, Jewish history will tell you that, you know, every, every city-state had their own God, right? Every city-state had their own God. Every tribe had their own God. Every na nation had their own God. Every empire had their own God. Um, and when you would go to war with other people, it would basically come down to an old-fashioned schoolyard spitting match against whose God was better, whose God was bigger. Well, what the rabbis taught was is that Belshazzar does this because he knows the prophecy about the 70 years. Now, you guys remember the prophecy of the 70 years, right? This comes out of Jeremiah. This was right prior to the 70-year captivity. This is the prophecy right here. 
It says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you. See, this is where that famous verse comes from, right? For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. So by this time, and this is what the rabbis believe, by this time, that prophecy was kind of well-known. It was rumored around, all right, with people. And um, Belshazzar knows this. He thinks, okay, the time's up. Daniel knows this too. By the time we get to Daniel chapter 9, he's going to start interceding and fasting and praying because he knows that the time is up. And so the thought is, is that the, the, the 70 years are up. The Jews are still here. Guess what? My God's bigger than your God. Nah, 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 right? <laughs> is the idea. And so now's the time to rub their face in it because guess what? Their prophecy failed. Isn't that interesting? It may be. I don't know. Again, that's just, that's, that's the, uh, the Jewish understanding of it. All right, look at verse 5. Here's what God does in response to this. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. And the king watched as the hand wrote the words. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Now, I was ruined by that show. What was that old, uh, remember the hand that walked on the Adam's family? I'm ruined by Adam's family, man. Because every time I read this story, I think of Adam's family and that hand jumping up there and writing or whatever. But could you imagine what this would have been like? It would have been terrifying to see this. All right, so in, in, then look at what he says. Look at the very next verse in verse 6. It's up here on the screen right behind me. It says, his face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. I don't think, King, I don't think there's any other translation that gets it better than the King James. Who has the King James? This is the, this is the NIV. King James nails it. Who's got it? Go ahead. Oh, okay. Oh, New King James won't do it justice. It has to be the old one. Nobody's got a King James anymore. Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against another. I just, till this day, I can't hear it any other way. His knees smote. I, I heard a guy say one time that uh, it, it was scary to see this supernatural event, but the thing that probably put fear into him more than that was somehow there is a power that got past his gods, got past his walls into the very heart of this high security banquet that he's throwing and is just writing up there on the wall, which, you know, like nobody can stop him. That's right. And, and it just absolutely floored him that he's not the biggest in the world. That's it. And you guys ever heard the phrase that somebody sees the handwriting on the wall? That's where it comes from. He is, he is literally seeing the handwriting on the wall. And, and, and even the King James is trying to be really nice to you here, but I'll, I won't, I'll go ahead and give you the, the PG-13 version. He wet himself and he messed himself. That's how bad it was. Okay? He, he, he couldn't have, he didn't have control of his facilities. Let's put it that way. All right. Verse 7. 
The king summoned the enchanters and astrologers and diviners, and he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in all the kingdom. Why not the second? Huh? He's the second. All right, you guys remember the history lesson, don't you? Because remember, who's, who's the primary guy? It's his daddy, but his dad's not there. His dad is a playboy down in Saudi Arabia. He could care less. All right? Which, by the way, is one of the reasons why Babylon gets taken. Because Cyrus knows that. And Cyrus took advantage of the fact that the main king was not there and that his little arrogant son was on the throne. And then that was the time he moved in to attack, okay? So whoever reads this writing, he says, I'm going to bless you and bless you and bless you. I'm going to give you a whole bunch of stuff here. All right. Um, let's look at verse 8, the interpretation. And then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. And so King Belshazzar came, became even more terrified, and his face grew even more pale. His nobles were baffled. Now look at verse 10. The queen... Hearing the voices of the king and his nobles came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. I need to make a quick comment the reason why it says his father, there's no Hebrew word for grandfather. You understand that? So it's Av, father, Avraham, Av. That word is used for daddy, granddaddy, great-granddaddy, great-great-granddaddy. <laughs> it's your father, okay? Like we say father Abraham, right? Okay, just make sure you guys knew all that. Now, who's this queen? We don't know. She's somebody who knew Daniel a long time ago, um, somebody who knew Nebuchadnezzar a long time ago. Some people think that this is the queen mother. Uh, maybe this is, this is the widow, if you will, of Nebuchadnezzar, and maybe she witnessed some of these things. But regardless, she has some wisdom to her because she, at least she knows where to turn to, right? So look at verse 12. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. I'm going to let somebody else read. Uh, who would like to volunteer to read a little bit more? I'm trying to share the love here, guys. You got it? Okay. If you would uh, go ahead and read um, 13 through 16. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I've heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems, if you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made third highest ruler in the kingdom. How do you think all that hits Daniel right now in this stage of his life? <laughs> he could care less, right? He's already been second to the king for I don't know how many decades. 
He already has been shown by dreams and visions that this dude's empire is about to fall as it is. He's already been shown in dreams and visions who's about to be the rightful ruler. He already knows the 70 years is up and he already knows it's about time to go home. He could care less about this man's wealth, right? Which is why he says this in verse 17. Um, then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to somebody else. <laughs> Nevertheless, I'll read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. All right, I'm going to get another volunteer to read. Who else would like to read? Max Dan? No, Augustine. Augustine, all right. Yeah, you do, apparently. My wife does the same. Bless her. Uh, starting at verse 17, if you would uh, just, just read on down to verse 21, if you don't mind. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writings to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all people, all people's nations and languages trembled, feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whoever he wished, he set up. And whoever he wished, he put down. But when he heard this, when he... But when his heart was lifted up, his spirit was hardened in pride. He was disposed from his, his kingly throne and then took his glory from him. Then he was driven out. He was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast. He dwelled with the, with the wild beasts and donkeys. They fled, they fled him with grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, that he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and appoints whoever he chooses. Very good. Anyone he wishes, right? God is ultimately the one responsible for causing, allowing, or denying any or all rulers on the face of the planet. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean he, he's behind their decisions, but sometimes he will absolutely give a people what they want in, in terms of a leader. Okay, but you, Belshazzar, his son, now he's going to turn the attention over here to Belshazzar, his son. Got a little bit behind here, didn't I? Sorry about that. Verse 22. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which can't see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Whew, that gives me chills just reading those words. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. Now let's get into this inscription. We're going to interpret the inscription here. Um, interestingly enough, another thing the Lord loves to do, and he does this with... Um, Dreams and visions, it's funny. But he loves puns. The Lord loves puns. You know what I mean by pun? If, um, what's, a, what's a good one, he says? Uh, oh, I can't think of a good one right off the top of my hand. 
Um, I'll just give you one. I, I used to know this. I used to know this woman named Joy. Okay, she was someone that we that came into our church off the streets. Well, let me tell you something. She was anything but. <laughs> she was a hardened soul. Uh, negative, 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 negative. Okay, so she was living almost ironically against her name, right? But a few years down the road, after she had come to know the Lord, she actually became quite a joy. <laughs> so imagine the Lord saying, you see this woman? She will be joyful, but her name is Joy. It's a pun. It's a picture pun, if you will. The Lord loves doing that, and he's going to do it right here with these, with these three words that this hand writes. So look at verse 25. This is the inscription that was written. Mine, mine, tekel, parson. Now here's what these words mean. Mine, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. I want to break these down one by one. Mine just means numbers. It just means numbers. That's all it means. And, and the, it means to weigh. It means to count. It means to, to reckon. And the idea is almost like an accounting, right? You're going to do an accounting of something. And that's the first use of mine. But the second use of mine is now the calculation, so we're going to calculate and get the calculation. Mene, mene. So he interprets that. He says, you've been numbered, you've been calculated, and we've seen the calculation, and you've been found wanting. Okay? So that's the idea behind the, the word. You've been tested, you, you've been evaluated, but you have failed the test. You have failed the test is the idea. Um, and, and here's what the, fair, the, uh, the rabbis would say too, David. I was thinking about this with, with the interpretation. When they did their interpretation of... Um, that he knew the 70-year prophecy, which is why he's throwing this big party to celebrate the fact that God's prophecies have failed or whatever. Um, the, the ancient rabbis taught that, that this is what Belshazzar had been doing, that he had been calculating Israel. He had been calculating the years and that he had added it up. And he says, aha, see, he found an evaluation. He, he tested them and found it to be false, found it to be lacking, found it to be wanting. And God is now turning the tables on him. And he says, I've, actually, I've been judging you. And now you have found, been found wanting." See, the rabbis are good at their interpretations. That's pretty good. I don't know. All right, verse 27. Oh, I had it up there already. All right, verse 27. Tekel, it just means weighing like in a scale. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Verse 28, Perez. Your kingdom is divided. Perez just means um, divided. But, but there, again, there's a play on words here, and you don't see it unless you are reading it in, from the Hebrew. And I want to give it to you in a way that you can understand the pun. Okay, now watch this. Paras, paras is the Hebrew word for Persia. You follow me? Okay. Paras is the word for Persia. Peres means broken or divided. It's a play on words. He's saying it, it means your, your nation is now divided, Perez and given to the Paraz. It's you are Perez, and you're going to be given to Paraz. Do you hear it? You hear it a little better when you say it like that. You catch the pun. Okay. Verse 29. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar king of the Babylonians was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. I want to end on this note right here. 62. 
I am of the belief that every single word in Scripture is divinely inspired. I am of the belief, which makes me a little odd, that every space between every word is also God-breathed and inspired. That means that every detail that God has given us is there for a reason. And then if we are diligent students and we dig deep enough and we look for it, we'll probably find something that we never saw before. And I was really curious about the age 62. Why? Is it just happenstance? Is it just because they just wanted to throw in a minor detail into the Word of God that they named his age? I don't think so. And I want to share with you why. How long was Babylon given to rule? You had it. 70 years. Okay. Every little detail. Think about it. The same amount of time that the children of Israel were be, to be punished for their sins is the same amount of time that God gave the kingdom of Babylon to rule and reign. Almost as if he rose them up for that purpose, which could very well be the case. I think probably was. But when that purpose was up, then God judged the Babylonians. Now, God rose them to power for the purpose of taking his people captive. Well, guess what? Nebuchadnezzar, we go back to 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 12. Don't, have, don't worry about running over there. I'll just tell you what it says. But in the eighth year of his reign, he takes over Jerusalem. In the eighth year, it specifically says, in the eighth year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he takes over Jerusalem, and that's when the captivity happens. Now, what's 70 minus 8? 62. That means that Darius was born at the same year the captivity began. Now, here's why I find that interesting, is that even though God is punishing his people, he is also allowing the one person to be born the same year that's going to rise that will eventually defeat the Babylonians and set his people free. Isn't that amazing? God is already planning your breakthroughs before you even know it. Before you even know it, God is already planning your breakthroughs. Okay, any thoughts before we close? Well, you all were a bit quieter today. I hope that's a good thing. We do have coffee available, I believe, maybe, uh, if you want a little wake-up juice. But um, I love you guys. God bless you. We'll see you for worship here in just a moment.